All right, open up to, you guessed it, Second Peter. No, it's just for, that was for Emma. Obviously, it's First Peter, because that's on the board. Um, open up to the letter of First Peter. Jesus is our example in showing us how to walk through temptation through prayer. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And he also calls us to do the same as our example, to pray that way. When following Jesus is against, against what our will, perhaps, our human will, our human wisdom would want to do. And that is what First Peter is about. First Peter is about following Jesus when life is difficult. And before we get into First Peter, I think it would be helpful to kind of get our bearings and help us kind of understand uh, kind of the, the letter. And so here's uh, just a few simple answers to some questions. Um, you, you'll see there 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. This is... This is the letter of 1 Peter. In a nutshell, this is who it's from and who it's to. And once again, it's very important before you kind of go into a letter to just kind of answer a few basic orienting questions like uh, who, when, what, and why, all these kinds of questions. So let's just answer a few questions so that we're making sure we're all on the same page about what this letter is kind of doing, who's it's from, who it is to. Um, you see that from question. It's from the Apostle Peter, maybe perhaps one of the most famous apostles other than Paul himself. We all know him as the bold apostle. Uh, we also know him as the overconfident apostle who denied Jesus, not to some uh, temple guard or some fearful, uh, fearful jailer, but he denied Jesus before a simple servant girl. Right? That, was, that was Peter's claim to fame. He was a denier of Jesus. He gave in and he gave up in following Jesus. That is the man who is writing to us. Uh, but he is a man who was uh, empowered by the Spirit and transformed through Christ Jesus' work in him. That is who Peter is. So he has a lot to teach us about sticking close to Jesus and not giving up. Who is it written to? It's written to Christians, as you see in verse 1, from Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, all of those little place names. And, And notice they are scattered. They are scattered because of their faith, yes, but notice they are also scattered in verse 1 because they are chosen by God. They are They are chosen to follow Christ, and that has put them into difficult positions. Matter of fact, you could say it this way. These are Christians who are beginning to feel the first bits of pressure that come against you for following Christ. They're starting to feel that, hey, being a Christian isn't always easy. Being a Christian means people are going to mock me, make fun of me, maybe even hurt me in the future. This is frightening. These are Christians who are beginning to feel the pressures of following Christ. What about when? When was this written? This is helpful. This is significant. It was written in probably 64 to 65 AD, and that's significant because this is around the same time that Nero was beginning to uh, bring about his uh, citywide persecution in Rome. Now, some of you may know geography, and you're like, Italy, Turkey, those are different places, and you're correct. You're correct, right? 
This was this was a, a persecution that was very localized to Rome. Actually, uh, Nero kind of used the Christians as scapegoats or, or as a kind of somebody to get the attention off of him, so to speak, because he actually burned down Rome. And when the city of Rome, the citizens of Rome got mad at him, he said, well, it was the Christians. And so then everybody started persecuting Christians in Rome. So this this is, this is from a man, Peter, who is in Rome, probably suffering the worst that Nero can, can, can bring against him. And he's writing to Christians that aren't in Rome, but I bet you are feeling the effects of being called Christians, right? You don't have to be in the area of the world to be persecuted to have uh, you know, a bit of effects from the persecution from the capital, right? Uh, hey, you Christians are disliked in the capital. I don't think we like you here either. As well, so that is when this was. It was during the Neronian persecution. Then what? What is what is what? what? What's the question here? What is Peter trying to communicate to these believers who are beginning to feel the pressure of following Christ? He is basically going to say this: If you are going to suffer as a Christian, make sure you suffer graciously. If you are going to suffer as a Christian, if that happens, that you are going to suffer as a Christian, make sure you suffer graciously. Make sure you suffer graciously. What do I mean by graciously? Well, this is basically uh, show God's grace from beginning to end. Or you could say it this way, uh, depend on God's power to find God's favor. In, in the book of First Peter, you see the word grace come up again and again and again. And it can sometimes mean God's power, God's enabling strength. And other times it means God's undeserved favor, God's favor in your life. But, but Christians are called to depend on God's power to uh, find God's favor. From grace, from A to Z. If you are going to suffer as a Christian, suffer graciously. So there you go. That's kind of what he says. Now, some of you may be asking another question. Why? Why should I care about the letter of 1 Peter? This sounds like it's written to Christians who are suffering and doing really well at suffering, right? I don't feel like if suffering was to actually happen in my life right now that I would stand very firmly for Jesus. I feel like a very weak Christian. I feel like someone who would be quick to give in and quick to give up. I don't think this letter is for me. Well... I would argue that it is for you. I don't actually think it's written to people that are suffering. They're, they're, it's written to people that are beginning to feel uh, the, the consequences, beginning to feel the, hey, this could happen to me. This could be a reality in my life. They're not actually in Rome. They're in Turkey. They're, they're hearing about persecution, and they're feeling like people are starting to watch them, and they're starting to feel nervous, and they're starting to think, can we continue? Can we endure? So I would actually say, uh, this letter is written to people just like you. People that say, hey, following Christ in the future will cost me. Am I ready? How can I be prepared to follow Christ and not give in and not give up? And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I, I, I kind of divide First Peter into three parts. Just as he talks about how to do this, what does it look like to suffer graciously for Christ? We're going we're gonna to see what it looks like. Three ways you suffer graciously. You suffer obediently, you suffer righteously, and you suffer faithfully. Let's look at the first, the first part here. Um, suffer obediently. Suffer obediently. This is the first part of the letter. Uh, 1 Peter 1. 
uh, 3 through 2.10, you could say. This is the first part of 1 Peter. Um, and in 1 Peter 1.13, all the way through 2.3, you begin to see all of these really strong commands, exhortations to obedience that Peter gives his, his, his readers. This is how you, you prepare to live a life of suffering, how you, uh, how you obey Christ in suffering. If you're going to suffer, suffer obediently. That's what Peter says first. And, and even now, you can prepare for suffering in your life by practicing these things, by obeying Christ already in these ways. What are, what are the, the levels of obedience? What are the, the, the obedience of the Christian that, that suffers obediently? Well, you see it. And we're going to kind of jump right into the the middle here. Verse 13, the first command, the first exhortation uh, for Christians who will will suffer obediently is that they fix their vision forward always. If you want to suffer obediently, that means you have eyes that are fixed forward always. Always, in every situation. Look at verse 13. Having girded up the your minds for action, being sober in spirit. Here's the command. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, look at it this way. If your eyes, if your orientation is constantly on the present, you will fall and you will fail. But if you're constantly looking forward to the grace that we've brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that will give you endurance. The Christian that has their minds fixed forwards are the, the Christians that have endurance. I, I've talked about it this in the past. We went through First Peter, but many of you maybe weren't here for First Peter. But being a Christian and having a mindset that's forward is kind of like being a time traveler on the Titanic, right? You know what's going to happen to this ship. And that makes you live very differently than the way everybody else lives on this ship, right? You are going to constantly be walking around the ship with a life vest on, right? You're going to go to sleep every single night with a life vest on. You're going to bring your own inflatable boat, right? Because you are not living for this ship because your mind is constantly aware of the end, right? A believer in the same way has a mind that's fixed on the end. They know that this world doesn't last and that what really matters is how you see Christ. Are you found in Christ when he returns, or are you found out of Christ? That's, that's really what matters to the believer. They have their mind fixed on the end. But, but notice particularly what they're looking forward to. They're not just looking forward to rewards, but they're looking forward to the grace that they will receive when Christ comes. Christians are ready to suffer when they think ahead to all the grace that they will receive in Christ. They will stand before Christ when he returns and know that they do not deserve to be with him. But they do. That, that gives a Christian endurance because their, their mind is fixed forward on the grace that they don't deserve, the, the unmerited favor that they receive in Christ. That causes them to endure. That's the first obedient, um, obedience we're called to live out. What about the, the second big command in this first section? Um, become who you are. You could summarize it this way. Become who you are. Verse 14, as obedient children, uh, not being conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the one who called you, be holy yourself also in all of your conduct. You, this, is, this is how Christians are to suffer. They are to suffer obediently by 
pursuing holiness, separation from sin and separation to God. That is how a Christian suffers obediently. Uh, the Christian who suffers are, are those who are, uh, suffers well, that is, are those who are actively putting off sin in their life, putting off sins of their mind, putting off sins of their action, and, and actively putting on, um, putting on deeds that they're called to pursue in Christ Jesus. The, the obedient Christian is someone who is constantly seeking to be sanctified, to be set apart for God's use in their mind, in their heart, in their life. They're constantly pursuing to become who they already are. I'm already holy in Christ, but now I want to become that in my practice every single day. Once again, you are preparing for suffering today or you're not based on how much sanctification you're pursuing in your life. You will, you will suffer well if you are being sanctified even now. That's another command. That's the second command. The, the third command that we see in verse, in, in, uh, where, yeah, yeah, in verse 16 and 17, uh, build up your fear, build up your fear of God. This is another mark of an obedient Christian. It says in verse 17, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during your time, the time of your sojourning. If you want to suffer well, obediently as a Christian, you need to have a fearfulness about you. But, surprise, it's not the kind of fear that you may be thinking of. It's not a fear of people, but it's a fear of God. Every time we see the word fear in 1 Peter, and it shows up all the time, it actually is referring to the believer's true fear of God and not their fear of everyone around them. Notice, notice turn over to 3. Uh, 3, verse 14, it, it says this, notice, notice the two fears happening. The, the believer is both not afraid and fearful at the same time. And one fear causes the other fear to uh, be removed. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 3, it says, Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. But do not fear their fear and do not be troubled. The, the Christian is actually called to not fear the things that this world fears. And not fear the people of this world. But notice, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. Two verses, right? In the, in the same two verses it says, do not fear. And at the same time, do it all with fear. What's that talking about? It's talking about living your life under a fear of God, of reverence of God. Matter of fact, if you turn back to chapter 1, uh, verse 17, you'll notice there's like two components of this fear in the Christian's life. The first component of this fear is, is that the Christian lives their days as one who will give an account. Notice, you're going to address a father, a father who judges impartially. A Christian says, hey, all of my life is going to be evaluated, not to send me to hell or send me to heaven, but to evaluate me. God is an evaluating God. Therefore, I live in fear. I don't want to displease my father, right? But there's, there's another component to this fear, and this is what motivates the fear. It, it, it's the component of that the Christian lives their life with a sense that they have been bought with a price. The Christian Christian fears God and trembles in how they live this life because they have been redeemed from sin. 
the penalty of sin and the power of sin in their life by the blood of Christ. Notice what it says there. Knowing that you, in verse 18, were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The the Christian lives soberly in this life with fear because the blood of Christ is precious to them, right? Sin is distasteful because Christ gave his life to save me from sin. How could I continue in sin that grace may abound? That is it. Build up your fear. Or here's another command of the, the believer that suffers obediently. Love your brothers. You see this in chapter 1, verse 22, since you have... Uh, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a love of the brothers without hypocrisy. Here's the command. Fervently love one another from the heart. Build up your affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you build up affection and love for other people? Well, first off, notice this is just a natural thing. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God and you've become a Christian, you have this, 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 this love built in as a Christian. You automatically love the people of God. But then we also see commands like the one here, love one another fervently, where this is not just automatic at the same time. You, you are born again, but at the same time you need to work on your love you need to guard your, your mindset with other believers. And you need to work to fervently love the brothers. Why does that matter? Why do, why do your brothers and sisters in Christ matter to suffering in this world? Well, First Peter will talk about that, but that's a little bit later. So hold on. But, but notice the command here is you need to seek to love fervently. Love consistently. Love continually. And then, then a final command also, if you want to suffer obediently, you see this in 2 verse 2, long for the pure milk of the word, grow up by the word, continue to pursue sanctification in your life. If you are going to be a Christian who suffers well, who suffers obediently, you need to be growing through God's word. How do you do that? Well, you, number one, you pray for a hunger for God's word, a hunger that removes any other hunger in your life. I don't want to read this other book as much as I want to know God's Word. I don't want to keep up on this show as much as I want to know God and His Word. I don't want to even, I don't even want to eat or sleep as much as I want to know God through His Word. You pray, God, help me to have a desire for Your Word, and then you read God's Word, seeking to build that taste, that desire for His Word. That is what suffering obediently as a Christian looks like. But it's crucial here. Uh, This obedience is not without a foundation. Uh, Believers uh, believers are not just called to obey things. They are given given glorious truths uh, through which they can obey those things. Uh, glorious foundations in their life. Matter of fact, I didn't give you the whole point. But really this point is, suffer obediently, surrounded by God's mercy. When you examine 1 Peter, you'll notice really quick, 1 Peter gives commands, just like uh, all the other places in the New Testament give commands, that flow out of the grace and mercy that you have received in Christ. Or to say it another way, right? The, The indicatives, the statements of our faith, are what surround the commands of our faith, right? 
We live out, we live out the commands of our faith, the obedience of our faith, because of the glorious truths that we rest on as Christians, right? You don't, you don't uh, do things to find security in God. You do because you have found security in God. You have already found the security of God in the gospel, and that leads you to freely, joyfully obeying. And, and just to show this, all these commands, uh, 13 through 2, 2, are surrounded, beautifully surrounded by reminders of your glorious salvation. And this is important for us to remember. And for the sake of simplicity, I'll just give you kind of one-word summaries for all of these truths that surround these commands. Um, uh, first, first glorious truth about your true spiritual situation that you obey in. Uh, write down the word protection. Protection. You have been born again to a living hope that is unshakable, incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, verse 4 tells us. Kept in heaven for you. You have a living hope. When First Peter uses the word hope, it's the same word that would be used for faith. You, you have a faith in God, a, a, a joy, a prize in Christ Jesus that cannot be shaken. You have protection. You have been born again to a living hope, First Peter tells you. Or you could say it this way, you live with eyes fixed forwards at what is your true reality. You say, this world is not as real as the next world is. This world can, what? Be robbed, be destroyed, um, be lost crumble, fade, but the the joys, the spiritual blessings that I have in Christ cannot, they cannot be corrupted, it says in verse 4, it cannot be defiled, it is unfading, it is more real than my current experience, my current situation, my future situation is this, it's a life that cannot be taken away. That's one word, that's one spiritual truth. What about another word? Uh, purification, we got protection now, purification, you see this in 1, 6 through 9, Peter essentially says, even if you suffer in this life, you can count on the purification of God. Even if you are to suffer, this suffering is only working to purify or strengthen your faith. It's making you hope more in the next world and not this current world. Right? You, you can look with, with security at the future, and you can also look at joy in the present, just like James 1 tells you, right? This trial will strengthen my hope. Or another word, word, privilege. Let's think about this word, privilege. This is another glorious theological truth that Peter surrounds these commands with. You see this in, in 1, 10 through 12. First off, this is, this is a crazy passage, by the way. You see prophets longing to know the things that you know as a Christian. You see Old Testament prophets wishing they knew Christ like you can know Christ. How's that for privilege, right? You have something that all of the Old Testament wishes they knew and had while they endured their trials. You have glorious privilege. But it gets even crazier than that. Because it also says in, in 1, uh, oh, 1, 12, 1, 11, 1, 11 and 12, that also the angels are desiring to look into these things. The angels can't comprehend the existence of being redeemed and pardoned by God. 
angels, there's, there's two kinds of angels. There's fallen angels and there are holy angels. And fallen angels are never redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. They, they, they simply are fallen, right? And angels, look at your situation. And they are longing to understand it. Longing to, to, to even know what it is like. You could say this, you, you should shake with fear because Christ's blood is precious. Christ's blood is precious. You have something, you have a privilege that no other created being has that is being redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Or, or a final key word that surrounds us, and this is where we get to 2, 9, and 10, where Peter says you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous night for light for once. You were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The key word that I think of here is purpose. Purpose. We have, as believers, a high purpose that is purchased by the blood of Christ. And that is to be people that magnify the glory of God in all things. Right? And notice, notice the, the privilege of this also. Uh, this purpose is a mercy of God. It is not what you deserve. And, and do you see this? So you see all those commands there in the middle of, of those two glorious statements of truth, Right? All of these commands to fix your hope forward, to be holy, to conduct your life with fear, to fervently love one another, to grow in the word are surrounded by what? God's mercy. That is is why you can have hope in these things, joy in these things, because you're always living a life surrounded by mercy. You are born again, 1 Peter 1, 3 says, according to his great mercy. And we are people to proclaim his excellencies by his great mercy. Our life is surrounded by mercy. That is why the believer can suffer obediently. But let's move to our next part of the letter. This is the middle part of the letter where Peter tells us to suffer righteously, driven by God's purpose suffer righteously, driven by God's purpose. Now, the, the reason uh, why I divide First Peter the way I do is because there's two parallel sections, this section and then the final section. And this section begins with beloved in verse 11 and ends in 4.11 with amen. And that amen in 4.11 has always confused me, but that parallels perfectly to another beloved in 4.12 and amen in 5.11. So two sections that begin with beloved and end with amen. And right here in this section, Peter is talking to us about suffering righteously and the, the, the kind of the setting shifts a little bit. He, 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 he moves away from just calling believers to, to obedience, to suffer obediently. And he, he moves away from calling believers to kind of live with other believers. And now he just takes on the task of saying, you are going to live in difficult situations and you need to suffer righteously. Uh, you need to suffer in a way that brings pleasure to God. And in all of this, you are driven by God's purpose. We've already seen God's purpose dominating our lives in 2, 9, and 10, right? 
But now he moves on to talking about all of the difficult situations that believers like you and I could face and tells us we should suffer righteously in those situations driven by this purpose that we have. Matter of fact, look at 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Notice once again, we, we see ourselves as not really belonging to this world. We, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, Peter wants you to live this life driven by a, a purposefulness in every place that you find yourself because of the promises you've received and, and the pathway of suffering that Christ has even uh, shown you and how to walk. And matter of fact, just for simplicity again, I'll, I'll summarize this, this section of 1 Peter with a few key words that you can jot down. First off, jot down the word word jot is such a funny word, sorry, uh, write down the word places, places. Peter exhorts believers to suffer righteously in every place that you find yourself. Uh, the places, these are the places you can seek God's glory in. Matter of fact, you see there in, in chapter 2, verse 13, he talks about being under government authority and then in a little bit later on in chapter 2, he talks about slaves and servants being under their masters. In 3 1, he talks about wives with probably unbelieving husbands. And then down there in verse um, 7, he talks to husbands with likely uh, unbelieving wives. There's all of these places where you will perhaps experience difficulty for being a Christian. And in those places, you need to suffer righteously. Matter of fact, your attitude towards God, it will be displayed most clearly in the hardest places that you are called, right? Your attitude towards God is not displayed in the easiest situations of your life. Your attitude towards God will be displayed in the hardest relationships, in the hardest situations that you face. But these are places where you can, what? Seek God's glory. You have been given these places, wherever you may be called, to pursue the glorification of God. Notice, notice what he says there in 2, verse 12, right? By keeping your conduct upright or excellent or righteous, evildoers will see you and it will lead them to glorifying God, which is really just a technical term for it will lead them to ask questions of your faith and be saved, and then on the day of Christ, they are there glorifying God because of you. You are put into difficult situations sometimes to be a light, a light, so that what is, what is true about you and your relationship with God and your attitude towards God will be revealed. It will be revealed through the hardest situations. This is the places you can seek God's glory. How about another key word? Uh, promises, the promises in suffering for God's glory. You, you see this section in 3, verse 13, all the way through 4, verse 11, the promises in suffering for God's glory. Notice verse uh, 14, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, right? This is a promise. God's favor will be upon you. 
uh, God's glorification will be through you, right? People will see your behavior and they'll ask questions. And you are given an opportunity to share about the, the glories and the riches and the unshakable treasure and hope that there's found in Christ through the difficult situations. This is the promises of suffering for God's glory. But also notice in, in 3, uh, 13 through 22, uh, the righteous suffer and can also anticipate a bit of a, a pathway to victory. And this is where we get into one of the, the craziest sections of First Peter, where Peter says, listen, Christ also suffered, and Christ, because of his suffering, went on a path of glorious victory. You too can find victory even in suffering. That's what he's talking about of these days in Noah, uh, of days of Noah in verse 20, and, and Christ's resurrection and preaching to the spirits who are now in prison. Basically, Christ, through his death, through his suffering, walked a path of victory that you also can walk. You can find Victory and proclaim his victory even through the hardest situations of life. Verse 18 Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You may die in the flesh, but you have victory. Victory, true spiritual victory. This is the promise of suffering for Christ's glory. Another key word, the path of suffering for Christ's glory. In 4.1, all the way through 6, Peter kind of walks through how to suffer well. How to suffer well. And it all begins in the mind of the believer, how they think. 4 verse 1 is, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same mind or the same purpose. If you are going to suffer well for Christ, if you're going to suffer righteously first, arm yourself with the same kind of thinking. Think like Christ. How did Christ think? Well, in a way, you can, you can tie some of the way he thought to your own life uh, for Four one, the second half of four one says we should rejoice in what suffering will produce. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You can rejoice in the fact that if you're suffering for sin, it shows that sin is being put to death, right? You are actually winning the war against sin. You are not giving in to sin because you're suffering for sin. You can rejoice in what this suffering will do. Or 4 verse 2, another strategy, another mindset of Christ. You should set your will to God's will. That's kind of like the song we sang, right? 4 verse 2 says this, uh, So as to no longer live the rest of your time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God, right? Your mindset should be that I am here to not just fulfill what feels good, but I'm here to seek the Father's will. That's another mindset of Christ. Or in 4, 3 through 4, we see another way, uh, another path of suffering for God's glory. We see that we should accept criticism. 4, verse 3 and 4, people are going to be shocked that you do not join with them in the same kinds of excess and things like that. And we shouldn't be surprised. Matter of fact, we should go into this life accepting the fact that if I follow Christ, I'm not going to be liked by the world. Or 4 verse 5, we should also anticipate the world's judgment. We shouldn't just simply assume they're going to criticize us. We should also say, they will be judged for this way of life. Therefore, I don't want any piece of it. 
right? 4 verse 5, they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And we should also await God's reversal as well. Verse 4 verse 6, a lot's going on there, but basically it's saying we will have a reversal in store for us in the future. And we should await that. We should be eager and joyful as we anticipate that. The basic, the basic application in this whole section, though, is your thinking and where you choose to set your mind makes all the difference in how you suffer. That is the key to the path of suffering, where your mind is and how you think. But there's, there's, a, there's a final piece of this righteous suffering under this point, and, and this is very critical for suffering righteously. And this is another key word. It's called provision. Write down the word provision. Provision. The provision of suffering for God's glory. Now, this is my favorite part of 1 Peter. Because he talks about all these things. He talks about the places we can suffer, the promises we have when we suffer, the path of suffering. And we might be tempted to think, well, I just have to do all of these things and it's good. But there's a critical provision that we all must put on if we're going to suffer righteously for Jesus and it is the people of God. Being with the people of God. Notice what he says in 4 verse 7. The end of all things is is at hand. Therefore, be of sound thinking and sober spirit for the purpose of your prayer. Above all, what? Keep fervent in your love for one another. Be, verse 9, hospitable to one another. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, employ it to serve one another. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving by the strength that God supplies. The basic fact is... You can't suffer righteously alone. You need to be with God's people and among God's people if you are going to suffer righteously driven by God's purpose. You need to be among God's people. Just a few examples. God's people help one another look ahead, right? God's people remind each other of the the treasures that are eternal and help them look past the treasures of this earth that are temporary. God's people fill each other's mind with the mindset of Christ. They help each other think as Christ would think. God's people pray for one another for their endurance. God's people provide a refuge from this world. That word hospitable. You have a home here on earth, even though it's temporary among God's people, and it provides you a refuge from the evils of this world. Or how about this? God's people are needed for the gifts they provide to one another, whether it's serving or speaking. You need God's people. You can't do this alone. Well, that is, that is suffer righteously. That is the suffering that is righteous, that is driven by God's power. Let's look at the final part of First, uh, first Peter. Suffer faithfully, strengthened with God's uh, viewpoint. Counter fear, counter worry, counter pride counter confusion in this world with seeing this world and all its all its all its glory and all of its glitz and all of its lostness from God's viewpoint there there's two final pieces of first peter that he kind of concludes his letter with and this begins in in 4 verse 12 and and then in 5 verse 1 the first part is you know ex- expect suffering to come because God is working. 
Right? Once again, we're, we're looking at the world from God's viewpoint. We should expect suffering to come because God is working. In the second part in five, expect specific attacks to come because Satan is working, right? If we're going to view this world from God's viewpoint, we see how God is working and also how Satan is working and we want to not be surprised by trial and surprised by the specific attacks of the evil one. Let me just kind of outline it really quick. Expect suffering. 4 verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. There's lots of repeated points here in 4 verse 12 all the way through 18, but there's also some key additions as well. And mainly what the addition is, is the viewpoint of God really magnified in this section. First off, don't be surprised. Expect it to come. Sin and temptation thrive and cause you to stumble because you are surprised by trial and trouble when it comes. But when you aren't surprised by trials and troubles that come for your faith, you will stand firm. It's like my favorite scene in every war movie that I've ever seen. You have two soldiers standing next to each other. One guy is, is, is just in, in full battle gear, all, all dirty, mud everywhere, mud all over his face. He's been in like three different battles in the last 24 hours, and he, is, he, he has seen a thing or two. And the other guy is just perfectly clean. He just got here. He's, he's green. He's fresh from stateside, right? He, he's, he's just coming here. He's not seen a battle yet. One bomb drops three miles away. The one guy in the clean dress just drops to the ground because he wasn't prepared. He wasn't expecting it. He was surprised by it, and that caused him to fear, even with, even with an explosion that's far away. Meanwhile, the guy who has been used to a battle, because he's been in three already today, he, he just stands there like nothing's happening because he is expecting it to come. A believer needs to not be surprised. They need to know what to expect. Expect suffering. God is working. Or you could see it like this. This is how a believer comes prepared for suffering. In verse 16, they see that there is an opportunity in their suffering for God's glory. And that's something we've already seen in First Peter, right? There is an opportunity to glorify God in the hardest situation. That is God's viewpoint in your suffering. Or verse 14, this will purify my faith. We've heard that before as well. They're prepared. Verse 14, uh, uh, this will be accompanied by God's presence, right? The believer has, is prepared for suffering because they believe that God will be with them in that suffering to endure. Or how about verse 17? Uh, this is all because God cares. Verse 17 talks about, in chapter 4, verse 17, judgment beginning at the household of God. God is a judging God. Why? Because He cares. And that is a comforting thing to a believer. God will not leave you happy and content in your sin. He cares too much about you to leave you in your sin. Therefore, He will allow suffering to come. How? Why? To, to purify your faith. Because God cares. That's, that's suffering from God's viewpoint. Or how about verse 19? You say to yourself, and you're prepared, this is all according to plan. Those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good, right? I am suffering according to God's will, and I'm going to entrust my soul even to a faithful creator, right? This is how 
you expect to suffer. This is how you are prepared in suffering. But what about how should you what what specific attacks should you expect? And and first Peter in chapter five gives just some specific instances that you can anticipate the devil will be working to destroy your faith. And number one, notice he addresses leaders because once again, if the church leaders can fall and fail, many will go with them. Church leaders will be attacked to uh, oversee with a groan in verse two, to oversee for money in verse two, to oversee with a big head. That's how church leaders can be tempted in specific attacks. But let's talk about us. How will you be specifically attacked? in the devil's working. You will be attacked to become proud. Verse 5. He moves from talking to the leaders to also talking to the younger. Also you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Or he'll attack you specifically to become sleepy. Verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in the faith, right? You are going to be tempted to be sleepy, to be caught by surprise. You'll be proud, I'm totally in control of my life. You'll be sleepy, you'll be caught by surprise by trial. Or how about this, you'll also be specifically attacked to become defeated. And this is where 1 Peter ends, right? You might be tempted to say, it's all lost. If, if, if suffering comes, there is no joy in my life left. But notice all of the joy and the hope that belong to the believer. Notice verse 10, one of my favorite verses. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and guard you. I love that verse for, for three different reasons. Notice what he says, after you suffer for a little while. Once again, a believer that suffers from God's vantage point sees how very short this life is. And then number two, look at this, the God himself will grant. Notice, God is coming himself and will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then notice also, who is this God? He is the God of all grace. He is the God of everything you need to endure this trial. You should not be defeated by anything. That is First Peter. The basic lesson is, hey, if you're going to suffer, suffer graciously. See all the grace that is yours to suffer. See all the opportunity and the purpose that's yours in your suffering. And see your suffering from God's vantage point. That is how you endure for Jesus and bring him glory. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this message, this letter of 1 Peter written to believers who are unsure if they're going to endure. And I pray for these young men and young women that they would be people that put on this message that strive to grow through this message and prepare themselves for however you may be calling them to suffer for your name. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.